1: Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. How are you, Paul?
2: I'm oh, great, thanks, Peter. Market's <laughs> it's bit, a bit scary at the moment. Uh, But apart from that, Peter, it's a beautiful afternoon and I'm ready to rock and roll in our program today. Well,
1: look, with that introduction, Paul, you can't help but get psyched up. On the line now, we have our first guest, Michael McCarthy, who's going to explain how scared we should be. But, Michael, have you ever heard a money show with a better introduction?
3: Never. That brought me back to the Saturday morning cartoons of 30 years ago. Peter. It <laughs> That's has, right. well, has all the drama and promise yeah. of a wonderful weekend.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is that, that guy is a guy called Dave Gibson who was Doug Mulrace's sidekick in the good old days and he was the, the voice behind Gloria and uh, uh, Mr. Fimey and Bogdan the Turnip Boy and he's <laughs> such a great voiceover guy.
3: Oh, now it all makes sense.
1: <laughs> all right, Michael, that's enough hilarity for one moment. Uh, let's kick off with, you know, why are the markets so nervous today, particularly Wall Street, but then roll into why they are generally so nervous over the last, say, f- five or six weeks?
3: Paul, I think it's all – Peter, sorry. I think it's all about global growth concerns. Uh, and that is – we have seen some evidence that some of the big – high valuation, high growth stocks in the US are doing it a bit tougher than we thought. We heard from Apple uh, and their iPhone sales look to be lower than expected. We heard from NVIDIA, the chip maker, uh, and their sales are also down on what was forecast. So the question for US investors is have we passed peak earnings? And the sell-off we've seen in the US indicates at least some investors think that we have. And although the outlook for the economy and earnings remains positive, it's not as strong as it was. And that means there's an adjustment in prices going on. Now add into that mix those concerns about global trade and we could see further downward revision of expectations for companies and that of course could see further pressure on shares. But let's be clear, this is not an unfolding crisis. This is about how much growth we're going to have not whether or not growth is going to go negative.
2: The the funny thing in all that Michael and I I hear exactly what you say is that um, one of the sort of forward indicators often about uh, growth is commodity prices, particularly uh, metal and oil prices And they're actually hanging around pretty okay at the moment. So is is it sort of just maybe, as you say, maybe just a reappraisal of some of the high valuation stocks that's sort of causing this sort of market uh, pullback?
3: Absolutely. Uh, I mean, let's be clear, particularly in in some centres, I'm thinking Germany, I'm thinking the US, stocks got to very stretched valuations, Mm. and that's generally not sustainable in the long term. And a correction under these circumstances is actually a healthy development for the long term of the market. You're absolutely right. I I watch copper and oil very closely. Mm. And although they've come back from peak pricing, they're stabilising at the moment. Ironically, as share investors appear to have got nervous over the last few sessions, commodity traders have got more bullish.
1: Well, but but Michael, something I was interested that you you made a reference to, namely, you said peak earnings is over, but markets don't really um, crash on peak earnings over because there's this earnings growth that's probably going to be more important. Once you get to a very high level, you can't keep going to peak peak peak, can you? What, what oh, that's you right. what you look for is can these companies keep still growing their earnings at reasonable levels and and. Earnings growth is pretty good, isn't it?
3: Absolutely. The problem is the mathematics, Peter, not the outlook. Mm. So, in the US in the last two quarters, we've seen growth above 20% for each of the quarters. Now, that is an extraordinary mm. performance. But as you get bigger, of course, the mathematics makes it harder to keep getting percentage gains like that. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that they won't keep growing their earnings. And mm. I, I think that's an important point for investors. This is not 2008, and we certainly are not in the category where we're looking at threats, global threats to the existence of markets.
1: Yeah. And, and, and also, I think you and I once talked about this, I think it was around July of this year, and I think 85% of the S&P 500's growth was down to basically the FANG stocks plus Microsoft at one stage. And so it was only obvious that when they come off the boil that the S&P 500 has to give up a fair bit.
3: Well, that's right. Uh, And and so, as I say, this is healthy correction territory rather than crisis. We have seen, for example, over the last few sessions, home building stocks come under pressure, and that's reasonable moderation that we're seeing is going on throughout the economy. but. The, the extrapolation of that into the future has, in my mind, got some faults. The reality is we look at house prices closely because of the wealth effect, that is, the effect it has on consumer behaviour. But consumers haven't really come out of their shells here in Australia or around the globe. So the impact of falling house prices, in my view, will be a lot less than it's been in other cycles because consumers haven't really come out swinging at any stage in the last 10 years.
1: Yeah, so what you're saying, when the house prices were booming over the... The, the five years before the last year Retail sales weren't going through the roof anyway
3: That's right We didn't get a positive wealth effect when house prices were going up I don't think we should anticipate a negative wealth effect If house prices are going down
2: So uh, crystal balling, uh, Michael Are we going to... Uh, I know Peter's... Uh, A great believer, at least statistically, in the Santa Claus rally. Now we're in sort of towards the getting towards the back half of November, I guess, now, and we're more on the back half, we're in almost the last week of November. (laughs) So, three or four trading weeks to go. Uh, it's going to be a quiet week in the US because of Thanksgiving, you'd guess towards the end of the week. So, we're really starting to get move into December quickly. Is the Santa Claus rally still on the on the cards or do you think with this sort of correction is just taking a bit more of a toll than perhaps we might've been saying a couple of weeks ago?
3: Well, Paul, You know I'm a numbers-based kind of guy Mm -hmm. and one of my favourite quants uh, has done some work around this. He's demonstrated that there is a statistically significant outperformance that starts in November and finishes around April. So we're in that period, but what month it gets delivered in is a lot hard to predict. And the Santa Claus rally is real. It occurs about two out of three years. So given that we've rebased ourselves, we're coming from much lower levels, I suspect that a Santa Claus rally from here is much more likely than not.
1: Yeah. And and also, do you think what goes on in Argentina between President Xi and President Trump is going to be fairly important to creating a reason for a Santa Claus rally?
3: Absolutely. And if they come out with even a a pause on the escalating trade disputes, I think that will be enough to spur some positive moves. If they actually came to some agreements over trade, uh, that I think could uh, see things get carried away right into December 31.
1: Yeah. So in many ways, Michael, um, it's it's kind of like the ego between two presidents, but both of their economies and their markets, and, and particularly the Chinese stock market does need a shot in the arm, It would be a fantastic fill-up to both economies and markets if an agreement could be um, nutted out in Argentina.
3: Absolutely. Um, It's a key event. It's something that the markets are watching very closely, and it's very likely to have an impact, as I say, even if they can pause things where they're currently sitting.
1: I'm hoping I don't have to use the headline don't cry for me Argentina. Yeah, There's a lot of us in this game who just itching to use it. I don't want to use it but I'm thinking about it. I can already see
2: him typing out there at the moment uh, this is the backup plan for uh, if the G20 doesn't amount uh, amount to much. But look I, I think you're right Mike. I mean I, I think that uh, look, Trump's proven himself to be a skillful negotiator come master politician when Mm. it suits. And you've got to think, it's not in his interest to see the stock market rally and the US economy fade away with this stuff. It's a... Absolutely, I think there's a couple of
3: rabbits to be pulled out of the hat. And I think, too, with the midterm elections out of the way, Paul, that political impetus behind a lot of what occurred between the White House and Beijing now dies down. And and, Mm. um, with that out of the way, uh, I think there are good reasons for the White House to find a peaceful solution.
1: Okay, so um, people have been asking me, Is this another correction which will be later seen as a buying opportunity, Michael?
3: It looks very much like that to me at the moment, Peter. 5640 has been a long-term support, an 18-month support level for the market. Now, we have breached it but recovered to it, and it's held many, many times. It's where we bounced in October after the sell-off there. So if we do get a move up in the next couple of days, it's going to form what the chartists call a double bottom, and that'll be further confirmation that the sentiment is shifting to positive.
1: Mm. Okay, so let's assume that you're right, and I'm right, so what are the, the companies that look really attractive to you for, for people who might want to be a buying opportunity bottom buyer?
3: Well, I note at the moment there's a lot of concern around consumers mm. and a lot of those uh, Trusted performers have done very well. Uh, who have done very well over the decade have been under real pressure. And I'm thinking about groups like Flight Centre, which has come off from around $64 to be trading around $46. They've done it again and again, and despite you know their exposures and their bricks and mortar, I think they've got a niche that's not fully appreciated. And this pullback, I think, has brought them to a level that makes them look very attractive.
1: And uh, their founder, Screw Turner, has a happy knack of. You know, coming up with something that the market eventually says, gee, why did we sell them off in the first place? <laughs>
3: yeah. Absolutely. Now, let's acknowledge there's a pretty hefty short position in this stock too. So yeah. if we do get evidence that the thesis that you know they've, they've, should, they've headed lower on is wrong, the move upward could be very short and sharp.
1: Yeah. And now, one other stock I want to throw at you because in the past – You've liked it, and I know uh, Paul's liked it as well, and I also noticed that somebody that may have been um, a a fund manager called Carlton at the Hearts and Minds Conference liked JB Hi-Fi, which is now the most shorted stock on the market. So I'd like you to talk to that one, and I know Paul would like to throw something in as well. JB Hi-Fi.
3: Peter, I look at um, JB Hi-Fi and I've got the chart open in front of me. In June 2017, it bounced off $22. In December 2000, sorry, November 2017, it bounced off $22. In May 2018, it bounced off $22. And in August 2000, it bounced off $22. In the sell-off that saw us uh, move downward in October, it bounced off $22. And here we are at just above $22. Mm. The chart is telling me that this is much better value uh, as a buy than as a sell, and I I have concerns for those with that significant short position, Peter.
1: Mm, Paul?
2: Look, I'm a JB Hi-Fi fan, Peter, as you know. Mm. Um, I I didn't buy it when they did a rights issue to, what, about $28, $29, Mm. but every other bounce I bought it, and I think they're a fantastically run company. Retailing is tough, we know that, but JB Hi-Fi, I think, have got the ingredient... Look, they've suffered a because of short sellers. B the Amazon fear. C the good guys acquisition is proving a bit more difficult. Right. But you know, it is a attractively stock yield's are high. They, they're very good in terms of disclosure. They haven't done anything to change their forecasts. Hmm. And I'm sure if, if if they were doing it tough, they'd be telling us so. Hmm. Uh, I think, uh, what I can guarantee, if this market bounces, the shorts will cover. So yeah. I- I'm with Mike. I think, this is a, I think it's a pretty low-risk stock to be long in.
1: Okay. I guess some of it would be, Michael, that the housing price um, scare uh, headlines around. Some people would be saying, well, oh, the housing sector is a lot worse than we think.
3: Yeah, as I say, Peter, I think that whole wealth effect's been exaggerated. We Mm -hmm. didn't get the benefit on the way up. I don't see why we should be hurt by it on the way down. Mm -hmm. I think, too, uh, some of these retailers have identified their markets very well and are very in tune to their own market. And JB Hi-Fi is a great example of it. We've seen data before that shows how well they turn over their core portfolio of products to match what's happening uh, in their consumers' homes and in their consumers' minds. And I don't see any reason to doubt that they'll be able to continue doing that.
1: I know when I talked to Jerry Harvey about house, um, the housing market going off the boil, how it would affect his sales. He said, well, that's true. He said, I'd rather um, house prices to be rising and, and confidence to be there. He said, but population growth and immigration is really good for my business. And same would apply to JB Hi-Fi, wouldn't they? Like Anyone who comes to the country, gets themselves a, a, a flat, they're going to go to JB Hi-Fi or Harvey Norman and, and start stocking up the stuff that you associate with living in the modern world.
3: Absolutely, because they're going to need a phone and possibly a tablet and mm. some video equipment as well. So, mm. yeah, uh, J.B. Highfield, well-positioned to take advantage of that.
1: All right, Michael, thanks for sharing your insights as always.
3: Thanks very much, Peter. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Mike.
1: So that's Michael McCarthy from CMC Market. He's got some sort of title, like I think he's, equity strategist. I think he? he's
2: chief guru, We've got chief, chief strategist. Yeah, that's a bit one. Chief guru at Chief CMC, gurus, we'll, we'll call him.
1: Okay, coming up after the break, we'll be looking at uh, another really, really important issue, uh, and that is young people, what are they buying? Uh, apparently, they're going off products, but they love services and experiences, and maybe old people too.
2: Well, maybe it's a, is, is a smashed avocado. <laughs> is that losing favourite, Peter? I, well, I don't know. I've never been a smashed avocado person. Well,
1: I like smashed avocado, but I'll tell you what. There are a lot of young people really cheesed off that baby boomers like you and me bring up the smashed avocado, irresponsible spending reason for them not having a good material life. They don't want to hear that, Paul, so don't do it on my show. (laughs) We'll be back in a moment. Well, if you're interested in growing your investment income without taking too much risk, we've got just the event for you. The Switzer Income Conference will bring together some of the smartest finance minds in the country and is coming to Melbourne on November 27 and Sydney on November 29. The expert presenters will be revealing how they invest for income, their views on the current market situation and the opportunities they see at home and abroad. As a podcast subscriber, we'd love you to come along as our guest. To get your free ticket, just go to switzer.com.au slash event, choose the event you'd like to attend, and enter the promotion code of POD on checkout. Or check the podcast description for more information. We look forward to seeing you there. Okay, our next guest is Ryan Felsman, who's Senior Economist at ComSec, and we're, we're going to follow a few really interesting stories that uh, ComSec has looked at recently. One is that uh, a whole lot of young people are looking to live closer to the CBD, and as a consequence, we're seeing the size of the average house actually shrinking, and also we've noticed it was spending that we've we got a much greater passion for spending on experiences. And I feel really guilty about this, Paul, because even I've been seen in a shop receiving manicures and pedicures. I don't, I don't want to be exposed as being a, a sensitive new age guy, but the other day we went, we were going to go to the movies. We are there like 45 minutes too early. And I said to my wife, why don't we go in there and get a panic? So...
2: Peter, sensitive maybe, new age,
1: not sure about that. Okay, so let's go and find out what's going on in the real world or the world of an economist with Ryan Felsman, who's Senior Economist at Comsec. Ryan, so what's going on with people like me? Why are we chasing these experiences?
0: Well, Peter, what we've seen over the course of the last few months is really Australians focusing on those experience purchases, as you mentioned. Yeah. So a lot of focus on going out to cafes and restaurants uh, at the same time, uh, still a lot of focus on going on holidays too. So amusement and entertainment spending has lifted by 1.7% in October. Yeah. And of course, uh, that has averaged over the course of this year in terms of that spending uh, at about... percent so uh, we're seeing this continued situation occur where people are quite happy to uh, spend on things that they're really enjoying so going out to cafes restaurants takeaways uh, are a big thing too but also at the same time going to concerts Uh, going to see sporting events, all that type of stuff that makes us feel better. So uh, while there's been a lot of focus certainly on those grudge purchases, uh, the likes of utility bills, health insurance and the like, uh, certainly um, how we've made ourselves feel better in terms of retail therapy to some degree Mm -hmm. uh, is really um, to spend on those amusement and and entertainment. But also hotels and motel spending has lifted as well at the same time. So um, really we've seen uh, a strong period of consecutive monthly growth when it comes to spending uh, on hotels and motels, uh, the most in about five and a half years.
1: Right, so I've I got a confi- another confession as well. I was on the Gold Coast doing a speech last Friday, and I had three hours to kill. I actually had a massage. And, then, like, there, nev- there never used to be – well, there were massage parlours, but they weren't actually for massage in the, in the bad old days. But so it is actually a sign that we – as human beings really want to um, improve our life not just by buying stuff but by actually experiencing stuff
0: well that's absolutely right and the business sales indicated that we Uh, collate the data from the Comov Bank, uh, which tracks economy-wide spending on credit and debit cards. Personal service providers has also been lifting as well as far as spending is concerned, and uh, massages would fit into that category, of course. Mm, So uh, really a lot of focus on uh, well-being, Uh, of course, with people working fairly long hours these days and long commutes and the like. So really when we do have that discretionary money to spend, we're kind of focusing on those amusement and entertainment, hotels and motels, and also personal services services as well. So uh, really a lot of focus on that at the moment, as well as also uh, on spending at clothing stores and retail department stores too on the back of uh, fall in those prices. Mm. And Ryan, do you you think there's a sort of a a
2: consumer switch away from goods to services? Because we sort of yeah, but the retail turnover figures for some years have been a little bit disappointing. In fact, uh, we're averaging more like about uh, 3% or less than 3% now for several years, which isn't much more than inflation, implying not a lot of growth. Do you think partly is because maybe there's just a transition effect? as people spend money on services rather than physical goods? Yeah, and
1: also cons- consumption has been important to GDP growth, yet the retail numbers wouldn't have kind of implied that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. So uh, if you look at those services, the things such as cafes, restaurants and takeaway, they're they're a service Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly personal services as well. Uh, Services spending has picked up versus those good spending, as you say. So that really is reflected in those retail sales numbers in particular, and I think that trend will continue going forward. If you look at household consumption, it has remained pretty firm. If you look at the most recent national accounts for the quarter, uh, we saw household consumption at six-year highs at around 3%. So uh, while it is a little bit lower in terms of retail sales, of course, if you look at the broader number, uh, which takes into account, Obviously, greater spending uh, that that is fairly firm at the moment. But of course, as you say, retail sales on an annualised basis at around three and a half percent is lower than historical levels.
1: Yeah, and Ryan, also, let's go to the housing now. And, and one of the things you, you guys put out is that the average size—and get me correct me if I'm wrong—the average size of house, houses or properties we live in is shrinking. And, and the identified reason is because a lot of the younger generation want to live closer to the CBD where they've got cafes and all that sort of stuff. Is this a a trend that is just going to change the nature of cities?
0: Well, possibly, Peter. I mean, if you look at City in Melbourne with five million people thereabouts, we're seeing higher density accommodation, we're seeing more apartments being built, and also if you look at townhouses in terms of building approvals, that's been around 21 year high. So we've got a combination of things going on. We've got obviously the millennials uh, and, and the younger generation really focused on uh, living close to work, having that flexibility, also as you mentioned, um, being near those entertainment and amusement uh, type venues uh, and certainly that's reflected in the fact that there's less desire for that quarter acre block uh, which we've seen in the past. So what we've seen as a consequence of all this is that the average new home size at 186.3 square metres is down about 1.6% over the past year and the smallest since 1996. So I do want to stress though that Australian house size are still the second largest in the world after the United States. But that said, Uh, really a, a trend downwards at the moment and really the houses being built are on smaller blocks as well Uh, We're also seeing certainly a desire to uh, live closer to the city with those larger commutes, uh, with traffic congestion and the like as well. So uh, really a combination of younger people wanting to live closer to the city, but also baby boomers downsizing out of the suburbs uh, and also wanting to live closer to those cafes and restaurants, bars and beaches and whatnot, also driving down those uh, average sizes of homes as well.
2: And and when we uh, break the data down, Ryan, into houses versus apartments... Are there any trends in terms of what's happening to the sizes of, of physical houses or physical apartments? Are they are both also getting smaller?
0: Well, that's exactly right, yeah. So houses, in terms of average floor area in Australia, uh, year on year are down by 0.9% mm-hmm. uh, to 230.8 square metres, and also apartments uh, are down by 2.7%, 224.8 square metres. So we are seeing a combination of smaller dwellings. Uh, so people uh, Eating out more. They're and, taking course, away the those- kitchens,
1: aren't they, Ryan? There's no kitchens. That, that, those that's, that's
0: absolutely right, Peter. There's, that, there's a movement towards meal kits. So, you know, the likes of Marley's Spoon, people are ordering, ordering mm-hmm. those meal kits online uh, on a weekly basis and thinking, you know what, rather than spending time in the kitchen and, and cooking a meal, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to spend that time watching Netflix or uh, engaging in other activities. So, uh, that, that, that's really led to a smaller uh, kitchen. Uh, desire for yeah. some people in particular
2: I, I was having breakfast the other morning at a fairly trendy uh, place in the uh, inner suburbs of Sydney, now that's a pretty on a weekend, this is a pretty irregular thing for me yeah, to you, do new and trendy, I never associate yeah, a, like, a bit like new age and uh, so on Peter, but yeah. anyhow uh, and I was talking to the proprietor and, and I saw this basically preparing Uber breakfast right? Uh, people, yeah, he was yeah. making bacon eggs and all the rest of the stuff and mm. mushrooms putting it under the heater ready for Uber to come and people deliver their breakfast. And I said to him, how much are your sales? And that?" he said, "It's over 15% of his breakfast now are people ordering online through Uber and other means. I mean, they only live 200 metres away, right? <laughs> yeah, <they're> sure. Can't walk down the stairs. They won't eat on
1: their balcony. <laughs> now, Ryan, while I've got you here, Uh, Because I'm currently being trolled on Twitter for for not believing that house prices are going to fall by 40%. I I have uh, have asked your colleague, uh, Craig James, for his view. But what's your feeling about how far house prices will fall in Sydney and Melbourne? And and be right, too, please.
0: Well, look, I I think there's certainly going to be a further correction as far as home prices are concerned from here. So Sydney so far is down around 8% peak to trough. Uh, So expectation probably that home prices will fall in Sydney specifically, uh, maybe up to 15% peak to trough. Uh, That would be certainly the biggest fall in in certainly some time. I think the largest fall uh, more recently was back in 1989 to 1991, just before the last recession when prices fell by 9.6% in the city. So I think broadly across the country, though, uh, if you look nationally, though, home prices are down by 3.5%, so there's less likely to be a significant correction in totality because markets like Hobart, Canberra, and also Brisbane and Adelaide are both fairly stable at the moment. But really, Sydney and Melbourne, where 60% of the stock of housing is situated, that's driving down home prices at the moment. We don't see disorderly situation arising Uh, I think based on the commentary from both the IMF today and also from the Reserve Bank with its minutes would suggest that they're fairly comfortable with what's going on as far as the fact that we've seen uh, prices cool quite uh, considerably but that said though there are some concerns particularly around the supply of credit with the Banking Rural Commission at the moment, title lending standards, and, of course, demand has also declined as well. You've seen that reflected in slower auction clearance rates at the same time uh, and less demand from overseas. So with that in mind, we think that this has still got further to run, uh, but we're not suggesting at this stage we're going to get a correction of 30% as some others are predicting.
1: Great stuff, Ryan. Thanks for joining us on the program.
0: Thanks, Peter and Paul. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan.
1: That was Ryan Felsman, senior economist at ComSec. And uh, coming up for the break, Paul and I will tackle a few questions that have been sent to us by our illustrious listeners. And now, a word from our sponsors.
0: Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300-664-339 or Google Switzer Home Loans.
1: Now, here's Switzerland! Okay, Paul, as we always do, we point out that the headline rate, three point eight nine percent, with us, is exactly the same as the comparison rate because there are no fees. But before we go into our questions to answer, Paul, I just want to throw a little thing at you that you might not have seen, but I've been you know, I've told you I've been trolled by people on the Twitter sphere. And one and one guy yeah, with a nom de plume, not not showing his real name. I think he's. I think his name was Humpback Forty Three or something like that. He was critical because I'm self promotional. He seems to think that uh, there's something wrong with me talking about our products when I don't charge anybody to come and listen to this podcast, I'm not sponsored by the ABC You're or taxpayers, no. I've got 50 employees to, to to pay for, and there's apparently something wrong of advertising alone at 3.89%, which is one of the best rates in the country, and in, on comparison rates, there's no tricks, there's no spokes or, smoke or mirror. He wanted to criticise me. Well,
2: why don't we suggest he, um, he starts paying us the eight cents a day that we'd get for the ABC plus everything else, Peter, <laughs> we wouldn't need to... Uh, mentioned our, our ah. loan. Of course, there's no obligation. This is like any other loan. You only take it out of your borrowing. And of course, we suggest, yeah. you know, as most people do, you shop around and you get the product that best suits. Yeah. But uh, look, we we, we shouldn't be embarrassed about being commercial, Peter. We're, we're in this business um, because we want to help people, but yeah. also we want to get rewarded for That's right.
1: It. Exactly right. So, look, it just seems like he didn't like me talking about house prices not falling by 40%. So he just found any reason... It, it, apparently he thinks I'm conflicted, and I I agree. I am conflicted. I will tell you about the products I've got, and I will tell you there there are possibly better ones out there, but they're usually online products, so you don't get anyone helping you. But uh, I, I was just flabbergasted.
2: Anyway, I let's move on. Of, let's, let's, let's let's help some on. real people rather yeah. than some Twitter trolls. <laughs> okay, oh. don't,
1: don't call them Ooh. twits. That'd be that be rude. Paul, I control myself. Okay. okay. <laughs> First question. Have you got the question? We want when they read it out. Oh, you gave them to me here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, dear Paul, so they're, they're singling you out here. Thank you for your thoughts on the BHP buyback. My SMSF is in pension mode. And I have two queries. This is uh, John. Firstly, my average holding price for BHP shares is $31.50 mm-hmm. rather than the $15 which you quote in your example. That's because you were showing off because he bought at a low price. Is the buyback still as attractive? Secondly, is the offer attractive if there is a big ASX 200 route over the next few weeks, implying a much lower BHP price? Thank you,
2: Yeah, look, two really good questions. In fact, I gave uh, an example of both a purchase price of $15 and a purchase price of $40. So for someone who might, on paper at least, be in a bit of a loss, Mm. the answer is yes. The buyback is your purchase price, if you're in pension phase, is – Almost an irrelevance. It, it is still very attractive for someone in pension. Okay. The big issue, of course, is if you accept in the buyback, you've got to think about what you can do with the cash because you are selling mm-hmm. some of your shares. So do you perhaps reinvest in BHP in the market? If there's a big sell-off, maybe yeah. it would be good. good or, or do you say, that's enough with BHP, I'm happy to move into something else mm-hmm. or stay in cash? So that's something you've got to think out. All, all I'm saying from a tax point of view, it's a very attractive transaction if there is a big sell-off in the market between now and, and when the buyback closes, and, and importantly, the buyback price is not based off today's price. It's based off the market price in the week immediately leading up to the closure. I think it's the uh, 10th of the 14th of December. So okay. that it'll be where BHP is trading on a weighted average basis over that week. That'll determine the actual price for the buyback. Hmm. Um, so, you know... If BHP does have a big collapse between now and then, it, there won't be as much coming back to you in terms of return. It means the frank dividend is going to be less, mm. but it'll still be attractive. So, and you're
1: still going to be the victim of a sell-off anyway if you're
2: holding. It's still going to be a better transaction to do uh, for a low-rate taxpayer than not to. So mm. I think for those of you who haven't seen my uh, story, uh, buybacks, off-market buybacks are really attractive if your tax rate is low. Mm. Uh, 0% uh, or even in generally even for a self-managed super fund accumulation mode paying 15%. But if you're lucky enough to be paying a higher rate of tax, 47%, 39%.
1: Because your income is so good. Because your
2: income is high, forget about it. Mm. So it's it's only a tax transaction and it only works for some types of taxpayers. Okay.
1: Next question from Laurie. He says, Our self-managed super fund is approximately 60% of funds invested in Aussie equities. With the remainder in cash, mainly bank term deposits and a small amount in trilogy's enhanced crash tr- uh, cash trust mm-hmm. or crash cash, the term deposits are yielding about two point seven five percent while the funds in trilogy yield about four percent mm-hmm. to improve our cash flow. we are considering moving more of our cash holdings into trilogy funds, mainly their monthly income trust, which is yielding around seven point seven five percent yep. The higher the yield obviously translate to higher risk and we'd appreciate your view on Trilogy products in general.
2: Okay, so Trilogy's been around for a number of years. So they're, they're a good manager and mm-hmm. they've got some good products. Uh, but you're actually, the point you're, raised, you're he's alluding to, of course, if you're going to get a higher expected return, then it means higher risk. And so Trilogy's uh, monthly income trust is actually a mortgage trust. What that means is that invests in mortgages. Now, they're not necessarily prime mortgages like, you know, we were just talking about yeah. Switzerland mortgages where the rate is, you know, about 3.75% or 389 okay, right. yeah. Often these are going to be second mortgages or yeah. third mortgages. And that's, so, that's really the Or they're going to be commercial mortgages where there's sometimes there's going to be some losses. So you are certainly going up the risk spectrum. Mm. I think the way to look at this is... Uh, Yes, it's going to make sense to invest some of your cash in that, but you've got to, as you take more risk, you actually want to scale down what you're investing because, yeah. you know, and, and and maybe you need to also, there are other people who have mortgage funds out there, mm. uh, and maybe you need to think, of, look at some other managers, diversification. maybe diversification across mm. a couple of managers. So look, mm. look, Trilogy, they'll be at our income conference as well, Peter, I yeah, think. That's uh, right. So I'm giving them a good rap, but mm. I'm not saying, and they'll be the first to tell you this is high risk stuff. Yep. Yeah. And when you're investing in higher risk, you've got to be prepared that things sometimes go wrong. Yeah, exactly. So right. I'm not take, talking you out of the strategy. I'm just saying be careful and uh, and you know, as you take more risk, generally you invest in more moderately mm. and you look, diversification becomes even more important. Exactly right.
1: And you, you and you, you should occasionally think, well, what happened? What would happen to my portfolio if the stock market fell by 50%? You should always mm. – and, and – If you're you're a person who really needs income, you've got to make sure you've invested in assets that will give you that income even in a 50% crash. And I think that's an important thing. But if you're young and and you love to be young and you're free and you love to be free to live... I'm going to rest that song. The bottom line is you can be exposed to growth. Your capital can fall, but it will rebound. You've got plenty of time to see it rebound. But make sure you invest in quality assets, whatever you do. Okay, this one comes from... By the way, I was quite surprised you didn't react to that song, Paul. That was a song from, anyway.
2: My she, musical education, Peter, may not be as no, good see, as yours. No. Is that possible?
1: <laughs> I hope some of our listeners remember that song. Anyway, I am… I thought you were going to sing there this, for a this, moment. This, this so. per, yeah, I could have. So, uh, Gary's probably cause he's 66. He would he up the song. I am 66, retired and drawing a pension from myself, man, Superfund. super fund. My wife turned 60 in March and retired in June. She's also drawing a pension from the super fund. As well, she has some income from a rental property. Can we make super co-contributions and/or spouse contributions in my wife's super account? Cheers, Gary.
2: Look, in theory, yes, uh, because there are there are two main rules with these things. First of all, you, your spouse has to be eligible for, to make a super contribution, right? Which, in most cases, means that they're under sixty-five, or she is, she's yep, sixty, or mm-hmm. that between sixty-five and seventy, they meet the work test. So. Yep let's pass the contribution. Is tick. it
1: 70 or 75?
2: It's actually 70. Yep, okay. So over, over 70, when they've turned 71, you can't do the low, the super co-contribution. Okay. And, and so they've got to be under under 70 in, in, in general terms. Yep. So the second test is that there's also a, a bit of a restriction on if, if your spouse has a lot of money in super, then you, these things, you're not allowed to do these anymore. Mm. So your spouse is super balance. Has to be under 1.6 million dollars, yeah. And you'll, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, if she's got that, she probably uh, doesn't probably need the okay. co contribution, yeah.
2: but still. But and then, thirdly, uh, sorry, and related to that is that the spouse can't have used all their their non concessional contribution cap, hmm. okay, yeah, you know, any one year, any one year. Hmm. And then the third thing, um, with a spouse tax offset, that's easy. That's so if we pass those two tests, no problem. So you make the country, you make the contribution to uh, her super. Uh, you get the tax rebate. For the uh, super co-contribution, there's a really important rule that says that at least 10% of her income, Now this, is, of course, is means-tested, mm. but at least 10% of her income has to be from an employment source. Okay. So if she's fully retired and not working, mm. which I think is uh, the way the question was right. set out here, then no they're not going to be eligible for the super yeah. co-contribution. If she was
1: taking a pension of, say, 30000 and she got herself a part-time job bringing in 3000 she would pass the yep, test.
2: She she'd pass the test. So okay. uh, not hard necessarily to fix, but, uh, look, you, you may not say it's worth it. Of course, the super co-contribution is only up to $500. It's not going to make or break. No. But, you know, there aren't too many free handouts from, uh, from government. Mm. If you want some more information, have a look at the Switzer websites. We've got lots of stuff up on, on uh, how those tests work. Great stuff.
1: All right, so that's uh, our questions. Now, remember, if you have any questions, just you know, email them. Uh, are we using info at switzer.com? That'll reach
2: us and yeah. we'll bring them to the podcast, uh, info at switzer.com.au. Yeah,
1: and, and we, we love answering questions because I think a lot of people have similar questions and uh, if we can answer those, it certainly increases the knowledge of our wonderful listeners and that's our main goal, to make people richer. Simple yeah, and we want to make people richer. We're conflicted. We're conflicted. We're conflicted.
2: We yes. also want to become richer by making you richer. Sure. it's a win-win. I, but that's a that's a pretty pure motive, Peter. I mean, no. I think I think uh, no. look, we're happy to. I'm, I'm not, we're not totally transparent about that. We're in, we're in this business to make money, but yeah. we'll make money by you making money, yeah. and you continuing to be our subscribers and and listening to us and, yeah. and and looking at our publications.
1: We're we're an education business with emphasis on business. Hmm. (laughs) Okay, Paul, thanks for joining us. That's the show for today. Uh, We look forward to uh, talking to you next week. Have a great week and don't forget to tell your friends and family about how good this radio podcast is. I'm Peter Switzer and he's Paul Rickard.